Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome back to Off the Shelf. I'm your host, Pete Sox, a Catholic book blogger. And today we have with us Steve Weidenkopf. He teaches at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology. He's the author of multiple books, including The Church in the Middle Ages, 1000 to 1378, Timeless, A History of the Catholic Church, The Real Story of Catholic History, Answering 20 Centuries of Anti-Catholic Myths, The Glory of the Crusades, and is the creator and co-author of Epic, A Journey Through Church History, and also the author of The Early Church Adult Faith Formation Studies. Steve's a member of the Society for the Study of the Crusades in the Latin East, an international academic group dedicated to the field of crusading history. He's also a knight of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem. Steve and his wife live in Northern Virginia and are blessed with six children and one grandchild. And today we'll be discussing his latest from Catholic Answers, Light from Darkness, Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, Pete. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, you're welcome. And I guess this first question, the answer may be an obvious one, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. Why this book now? Yeah, that's actually a great question, Pete, and I thank you for asking it. And, you know, the the genesis of this book really uh, came about over the course of of years, frankly. And as as I taught and as I gave presentations at parishes and things uh, throughout the country, I I would normally or usually, I should say, get asked the question, um, you know, when Catholics reflecting on on the, the time that we're living in in the church today and the various things that are going on, the sex abuse crisis, the financial corruption, this and that, all the headlines, you know, that we, we read about of our church, mm-hmm. I'd always get asked the question, or I would get asked the question, you know, are these the worst times ever in church history? Um, and that question kind of took me back a bit uh, when people asked it, because being steeped in church history, knowing church history, well, teaching it, you know, I thought to myself, uh, I kind of chuckled inside, you know, well, no, this is not the worst time in church mm-hmm. history. You know, do you, do you know about Pope John the Twelfth in the 10th century and, uh, and, you know, the porno papacy or the pornocracy at the time or, or you know, the, the other horrible times in church history, the Renaissance popes or, you know, clerical corruption that was widespread all throughout the church. 
or in various other times, right? And so th that was my first reaction was, well, no, you know. So I thought, well, why are people asking these qu this question? Is it is it because there's a lack of church history knowledge and knowledge of church history? I think that was that's partially true, right? Some and it's not uh, it's not that it's not meant as a slight or anything on mm -hmm. people. I, I think you know we don't teach church history that that effectively or that well, and and especially in catechesis and in parishes, the focus is on sacramental prep and on you know scripture study and things like that, which is all very important. Um, but there, there is a, a, I think, a lack of historical knowledge on the part of many Catholics, and of which I've been trying to, to change that over the last couple of years with some of the books and things that I've written, as you mentioned there. And but the other thing that came to my mind um, to answer this question was it was more than just that. It's, it's not why are people not only are they asking that question, but what's behind that question? Why do they think it's the worst time in church history, right? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, not only is there maybe a lack of church uh, history knowledge, but there's also I think, a, a lack of a historical perspective on things, right? So when we don't know our history, we, we then can't learn from it. And so we can't place what's happening to us in our day and age in the proper context of things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to make this even shorter, right, this, to, when we know our history and we know the dark times that have happened in the church's past before, we can we can not only have a greater, uh, we're going to have a lesson, lessening of anxiety about our own day and age. You know, we can think to ourselves and know, well, things were worse before, but not that's not meant as an empty platitude, right? That that uh, we should just ignore the things that are happening in the church today, but but rather we can put them in that context and just recognize and know that you know, as I bring out forth in the book here, which I'm sure we'll talk about, it, is that mm -hmm. dark times in the church's history have led to times of great renewal, reform, revitalization of the faith. You know, uh, God has brought light from darkness, hence the title of the book. So mm -hmm. um, it's it's not, you know, a dark time is, although it's difficult to go through it, it's not necessarily, um, you know, a bad thing long term. That's what I mean by that, right? So. Right, right. So in the introduction, you discuss what you call a tyranny of the present. Can you describe that a bit for us? And what exactly did you mean by that? Yeah, and the, the tyranny of the present kind of goes into, uh, you know, what I've been talking right now about, about just being a lack of historical perspective, right? So in our modern society, it's so oriented and we are conditioned, I think, especially from the various technological things we have at our disposal, social media and whatnot, we're, we're disposed to focusing and we're conditioned really to, to be focused only on the present. And so, so things for us get amplified, right? So when there's a scandal, there's a crisis, there's you know a cleric that's defrocked or a cleric that commits a, a horrible heinous sin against children or what have you, you know, it, we know about it immediately, uh, which is a bit different than Catholics in centuries past, right? I mean, not to say that scandals in the church weren't known by Catholics in the past; they absolutely were, but the the rapidity with which they learned about that was lessened. Um, right. We, we, we know things almost instantaneously when they happen or when they're reported uh, and we're bombarded with that information. Right. I mean, our news cycle is such that it's it's you know, we go from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis. And mm -hmm. it's it's constantly talked about. Right. Mm -hmm. No matter what the crisis is, whether it's a, a religious crisis or a, or a political crisis or what have you. Um, that's just the, the, how we've, how our structure and society has been, been built, if you will. And so by being placed in that and being focused on that tyranny of present, we lose the ability to learn from our historical past and, and then to have that, that greater sense of historical perspective so that when faced with crises and scandals in our own day and age, we, we, we don't react, um, in, in such a, a kind of violent negative way. 
that that disturbs our peace, right? And mm-hmm. I think that part of the tyranny of the present does that. It disturbs our peace and our joy as Christians and as Catholics. If we're so bombarded all the time with negative news, um, that can be wearing on people, right? It can wear people's faith. It can erode people's faith. And and I think we need to we need to be, just be heightened and aware of that's how our, our society is conditioned or how we've been conditioned by our society, I should say. And and to take a greater, um, you know, uh, solace in in history and in historical knowledge and perspective. Right, right. In, in the book, you explore nine different periods in church history that you label as darkness. Uh, again, hence the title. Um, and I'd like to touch upon a few of those just to give um, give us a taste of what's in the book. And the first period you look at is early church, is in the early church. And we know a lot about the rapid growth of the church, but I think sometimes we forget that what comes hand in hand with growth is also uh, growing pains and issues. Uh, what can you tell us about what could be labeled as infighting within the early church? Yeah, no, that's that's great. It's a good way to put that. And yeah, I think that we sometimes have this uh, this idea, right? This idyllic notion of what the early church was like, or I think many people do. That we, we have this kind of sense of, oh, all these early Christians, they were being persecuted by the Romans, so they were all just kind of huddled together and, and supporting each other, and everything was fine, and there were there was no internal issues. Um, and and that's there's nothing you know that couldn't be farther from the truth, right? Of what was really going on in the early church. Mm-hmm. Um, there was not only external issues and and pressure and persecution. There was also internal problems as well. And so yeah, the first chapter I talk about is is titled the Lapsi, which is the Lapsi refers to a group of Christians who apostatize basically and give in during the time of Roman persecution, especially in the mid third century. Uh, where they offer incense to to the pagan gods, uh, receive a certificate called the labellus from the government saying that they sacrificed. Uh, and then once persecution ends, they want to be re- readmitted to communion with the church. And so you have different groups in the church that develop on this question of what to do with the lapsi. Do we let them in? Do we not? Uh, and you have really three kind of camps that, that develop in the early church over this question. The one camp is called the rigorists, and these were these were Christians, Catholics, who you know, basically, in essence, said, you know, no, the, the lapsi shouldn't be allowed to come back into the community with the church, right? I mean, we, we all suffered. Many of us uh, were imprisoned, were tortured. We had family members that had, had that happen to them. You know, we saw the, the witness of the martyrs and their horrible deaths. And now that it's safe and now that the Romans aren't interested in us anymore, you know, these people want to come back. Well, no, which which is kind of, you know, it's from on that perspective, it's it's understandable why they would have that that, that position, if you will. So that's the rigorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then on the other side, there were the laxists. And the laxists were people that said, you know, hey, it's the, kind of the opposite coin to the rigorists. They said, well, yeah, it was a difficult time. We were all scared. Everybody was afraid. Um, and, and, you know, these people just, they, they you know, allowed that fear to take the better of them, if you will. And they, they decided to give in. But, you know, now it's over and they're sorry. And uh, we should we should show mercy and let them in. Um, and then there was a middle position that that was taken by uh, the popes of the time, as well as many uh, North African bishops, especially Saint Cyprian of Carthage, who said, you know, it's really a both and, right? It's it's this is a serious sin, apostasy, giving in during time persecution is is a serious sin. So we can't just excuse it and take the laxist approach. Um, nor can we refuse to show mercy to the lapsi, um, especially if they're penitent and want to come back into the church. And so we can't take the rigorous approach. So there's a middle road to take here, which is recognizing that the seriousness of the sin, but then also uh, ensuring that the lapsi perform 
uh, a, an acceptable amount of penance. Uh, and then once they achieve or once they go through that penitential process, they can be welcomed back into the church. And so really the light that comes out of that darkness and that internal question is the further pastoral development of the sacrament of penance and, and the church's understanding of sin and forgiveness and mercy and that pastoral application of that sacrament. So it's, it was a good thing uh, that church had to go through those questions. Mm-hmm. And as you progress through the book, um, you come upon the 11th century, and I want to touch on this next because you briefly touched upon it when we were talking about the introduction of the book, and that um, is a period where you deal with clerical corruption and sexual immorality. Uh, we know of these issues in our own time. What can we learn from that period, and how do we apply it to today? Yeah, great. That, that period of time is is very, very similar right, to the time that we're going through now. I mean, albeit differently with different um, different historical context and whatnot. But yeah, in essence, it's, it's, it's akin to what we're dealing with, right? So at the time in the 11th century, there was two major issues that was rampant throughout the church. One was the ecclesiastical abuse of simony, it's called, which is the buying and selling of ecclesiastical offices, which is in essence, you know, uh, motivated by greed and corruption. Um, and then there was this rampant sexual immorality where you had priests not living and, and monks not living their promise of celibacy. So you had priests who were actively living, openly living with women and, and concubinage or even at marriage, fathering children with them. Uh, there was a rampant problem of homosexuality with the Benedictine monasteries at the time as well. And so what happens at that time, as, as, as happens throughout many of the times I illustrate in the book, is that the Lord raises up you know, a particular individual, a prophet, if you will, someone who kind of shines a light on the situation and calls for reform. And the person that that uh, is a is that prophet, if you will, during this time in church history is Saint Peter Damian. And Peter Damian, you know, himself a monk, um, you know, sees what's going on in the monasteries and and recognizes there needs to be reform and, and that the uh, you know behavior of his fellow monks and fellow clerics needs to improve and to change, and that they're giving a horrible example and causing scandal to the faithful and the lay faithful. So he decides to write a series of letters to the Pope at the time, Pope St. Leo IX, um, and asking him to, to root out the, these, these two vices, if you will, of simony and, and, and sexual immorality among the clergy. Later on, his letters are compiled into a book, and it's given the title of the Book of Gomorrah uh, in, in the later 13th century, not a title he gave it. But, but when you read that book, you can still read it today. It's, it's, it's very sobering and disheartening reading, right, in terms of what, how Peter describes or what he describes is going on in the monasteries at the time. Um, and so one can really, especially in our modern age, uh, dealing with the recent sex abuse crisis and whatnot in our church, uh, now we can, we can obviously very much um, identify with what St. Peter was discussing and what he was calling, and, you know, calling out, if you will, uh, at the time in the 11th century, and but we can take solace from it because that letters, the letters that he wrote to Saint Leo, uh, really did motivate the Pope to begin a reform movement, um, mm-hmm. along with some other factors as well. But basically, Leo the Ninth decided to initiate one of the most comprehensive reform movements uh, in all of church history. He was Pope for five and a half years. He only spent six months of that of that pontificate actually living in Rome because he. The rest of the time, he was traveling all throughout Christendom, holding local synods and meetings where he issued and passed reform decrees, and uh, you know, got rid of uh, clerics who were not uh, who didn't abide by his decrees, deposed bad bishops, installed new and virtuous men, and really thoroughly kind of, if you will, uh, reformed the church and cleaned house. And uh, so we can take from that 
the understanding that, you know, although it's difficult to go through and see and hear these about these scandals in our own day and age, and it, it hurts and it wounds our faith to see, you know, clerics do these, these horrible things and commit these sins. Um, there is light at the end of that tunnel, if you will, whereas, it, you know, we can take solace that hopefully the Lord will bring forth the great reform in our church that's needed now as, it, as he did in the 11th century. Mm-hmm. Throughout the book, you cover uh, various heresies that have cropped up in uh, in the way of the church throughout the throughout the ages. Um, and the comforting thing, going back to one thing you said there at the beginning of the interview, was the whole light from darkness. Um, we've definitely seen heresies that were very dark times in church history. And I just want to get your thoughts on some of those uh, heresies and how the church came out stronger and why we should use that as sort of a comfort to uh, anything we might see that we're not— um, happy with today, shall we say? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I mean, I discuss in particular in the book, right, the Albigensian heresy, which mm-hmm. was a really pernicious heresy in the south of France at the end of the 12th and into the 13th century. Um, you know, Gnostic-based, uh, or at least in terms of its its general thought, um, you know, the Albigensians or the Cathari, they were also called, believed in a dualistic, or they had a dualistic understanding of the world, right? They believed that all things that were material were created by a bad God, you know, by a bad spirit, a bad God, and so therefore were evil. Anything that was spiritual uh, was created by a good God, and therefore, you know, the spiritual things were good, but material things are bad. So for the Evagentians, your body, you know, was bad. Uh, for them, the ultimate uh, ability or the ultimate act of worship was actually committing suicide and 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 freeing your good soul from your bad material body. Um, and it calls in, obviously this heresy calls into question a lot of basic Catholic doctrine, right? About the incarnation. Uh, Jensen's believe that Jesus wasn't really you know man, wasn't true God and true man. He only appeared to be man, but really wasn't. So you know, kind of hearkening back to some earlier early histories or early heresies in the church's history as well. Um, you know, they, they argued that the marital act, you know, within marriage is also a bad thing because it enslaves or can enslave a, a good spiritual soul and a bad material body. Um, you know, they, they preached and lived a, a very strict asceticism, you know, strict fasting, didn't eat meat, for example, either. And, and so their, their diet was very restrictive. And, and so they, they really had kind of had this, this, um, you know, uh, took many, many basic Catholic doctrines and, and warped them, which is what really heresy is in essence. Um, and, and part of the issue, though, for what, why this was such a pernicious heresy in the south of France was that the clergy at the time, the clerics in the south of France, priests and whatnot, were not living the faith as authentically as they should. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were many bishops who were not enforcing the reform decrees of previous centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, were, were not living, you know, uh, virtuous lives themselves, not give a good example. And many of them also didn't, um, you know, priests didn't know the faith well, weren't formed in the faith well, and couldn't then respond authentically to some of the challenges doctrinally that the Albigensians raised about the Catholic faith. And so many people, you know, because of all of that, right, uh, began to join the heresy and, and join this counter-church, really, and so that led to one great reform, and that was, um, you know, the, the great St. Dominic is, was traveling through the region as an assistant to his bishop and saw what was going on in the south of France and had this call from the Holy Spirit, if you will, to found an order uh, that would, a religious order that would be focused on education, that would be focused on being able to defend the faith intellectually uh, and be able to preach it well and to live it authentically as well uh, by living the virtues and evangelical councils. And he founded the Order of Preachers of the Dominican. Uh, and so that was that's a great thing that comes out. And that's that's also 
you know, you see this in many different other times of crisis, too, as I point out in the book, that, you know, in these times of darkness, the Lord will bring forth great reform-minded individuals, right, whether lay people or, or, or clerics. And then oftentimes they will then go on to form, especially the clerics, you know, will go on to form great uh, religious orders. And uh, I'm thinking of the Dominicans here, the Franciscans as well, I talk about in this chapter. And then later on, you have the Society of Jesus and the Jesuits during the time of the Great Catholic Reformation in response to the Protestant Revolution. So there's a there's a lot of, of you know, great reform-minded individuals that, that are produced, if you will, because of this darkness. And they give us, you know, a great... Uh, example this is what we really can take i think hopefully from the book is is that all of these reform-minded individuals that i highlight in the book that, that brought about great reform in the church um followed the basic catholic reform principle if you will of reforming oneself first and being the best disciple of christ that that we can be individually first uh and then taking the reform you know uh, to a to a larger working to reform outward from the individual, if you will. So it starts with us that then, you know, we can reform our family, we can reform our community, our parish, our diocese, our monastery, whatever it is, uh, and then ultimately the universal church that way. So reform is 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 sometimes top down from popes outward, if you will, mm-hmm. but a lot of times it's it's from the local level radiating upward. For sure. And I, I want to fast forward a bit while we have some time here together today. And you talk about the plague of modernism in one of the chapters. How did that develop, and why is it so dangerous? Yeah, modernism is is one of those pernicious heresies that I mean, Saint Pius X called it the synthesis of all heresy. It's a it's an attack really against the the supernatural nature uh, or the supernatural really. It's 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 a movement that seeks, especially among uh, scholars, and it's an intellectual movement. It, it found a lot of adherence in scripture scholarship. Um, back in the 19th century, <clears throat> excuse me, and it, uh, it it really, again, seeks to strip the supernatural away from the faith. And so a modernist interpretation of things um, finds natural explanations to explain supernatural things is another way to put it. So in scripture scholarship, that frequently led to people, you know, positing the idea that, for example, the feeding of, of the various, you know, thousands in the gospel when Christ does that, right? Taking several loaves of bread and some fish and then feeding 5,000 people. The modernist interpretation would say, well, that really wasn't, there was no supernatural event that happened there. There was no real actual miracle, an actual manifestation, the divine manifestation uh, of, you know, of taking physical things, a few physical things and, and multiplying them so everyone can eat. Really what happened was it was just, you know, people brought food, but they didn't share it with others. And so Jesus was able to get people to share their food. Um, or, and that's how the 5,000 were fed. Or, for example, the crossing of the Red Sea by the Israelites, right, fleeing the Egyptians. Um, the waters parted, a modernist would say, but but would, say, would argue that the reason why they parted was because there was a very strong wind that day and the Nile was very low. The, the level, the water level was low, so the waters were easily moved by this mighty wind, and the Israelites were allowed to walk across dry shot, if you will. So again, finding natural explanations for supernatural things, and why that's why that's pernicious, and why that's that's uh, you know a heresy and bad is and detrimental to the faith is because it sows doubt in the minds of people, uh, and it begins to to at least a skepticism, it leads to a rejection of divine revelation, really. 
Uh, and it, it centers things within, you know, a, a human, a purely human, purely intellectual uh, discussion and environment. And that leads to skepticism and those kinds of things leads to other issues such as moral relativism, which we're dealing with in our modern age, where people reject God-given objective truth. And instead, morality is not something that's given to us by God that we must, uh, you know, uh, we must uh, uh, affirm and we must live by and we must accept. But rather, morality is something that we can create, right? Uh -huh. We can we can decide if something is evil. We can decide if something is is good, uh, even if it is evil, right? Uh, so we can redefine marriage, for example. We can say that abortion is fine and 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 a good thing when it's clearly not. And so that's how this this modernism develops, kind of grows out of the Enlightenment, you know, the 17th century, 16th century intellectual movements from Europe, especially in France and in England. Uh, it takes root in intellectual institutions and universities, uh, and and it leads really to this this neo paganism that our society has embraced. And one of the underlying themes in the book, and we've we've kind of danced around it a bit here in a couple questions today, is that there's always good Catholics who can turn the tide and and uh, lead to reform. Um, you know, as we noted, it's it's even sometimes the most um, unlikely person that God lifts up to to fulfill that role. In saying that, what is our course of action in the current climate of the church today? Yeah, great question. And and you know, I kind of end the book with with a or I do end the book with a chapter on that 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 uh, gives us an historical example of of what not to do in a time of, of church crisis and how what, how not to act and then how to act. And, mm -hmm. and I you know, use as my two examples there, two Dominicans, uh, one that one Dominican that was, people are probably very familiar with at St. Catherine of Siena, one of the most beloved female saints in church history. And then I also look at uh, Savonarola, a 15th century Florentine monk, uh, which people are probably not as familiar with. But in essence, right, uh, Savonarola got himself wrapped up into politics. He began to see that he was the his way and his idea for reform was the only way. Uh, and that and he, you know, engaged in, in conversation and in activity with the church in a very antagonistic perspective, uh, not out of filial obedience and uh, and ultimately, uh, you know, was condemned by the Florentine government and hanged and burned as a heretic. Uh, whereas St. Catherine of Siena, on the other hand, you know, was also living at a time of a great crisis in the church's history. Um, but it was always it was very direct about uh, seeing or calling scandal what it was and to calling popes and others to reform and to repent. But she always did so with a, a sense of filial obedience to, you know, the, the hierarchy, to the church uh, and to Christ. Right. Her reaction was always rooted out of her love for Christ. And she never let anything disturb her from that, right? So no matter what the scandal was, no matter what the crisis was, no matter what the turmoil was or the problems in the churches she saw, and that she rightly pointed out, she never allowed them to, to become the, her sole focus, right? She always kept herself rooted in Christ. And I think for us in our own day and age with our own struggles within the church and, and the things that we've, we've kind of talked about as well today, you know, that we're dealing with, that's the path. Right. We need to imitate, imitate St. Catherine of Siena. We need to call out problems when they exist. Um, you know, so no one is and I'm not arguing, you know, we just bury our heads in the sand and just, you know, be blindly obedient and, and not say anything negative about what's happening in the church or, or decisions or other things that are made that are, that are inappropriate 
or, or not call scandal what it is or, or not, you know, be shocked and, and angry when clerics do, you know, horrible things, all of which we should. But, but at the end of the day, our faith is not in, you know, uh, our faith is in Christ, I guess, put it in a positive way, right? Our faith is in Christ, and so we need to be rooted in him, rooted in a, in a deep prayer life, and in living a sacramental life so we can receive grace to be strengthened during the times that, that challenge our faith when we hear about these scandals and read about these scandals. Um, and, and, you know, again, work towards reform at first ensuring that we are as reformed as we can, right? That we are living the virtuous life as a disciple of Christ and living our universal call to holiness through our baptism as authentically as we can. And that gives us an ability then to, to call for reform uh, uh, within the church and to highlight the problems and, and uh, bring about a revitalization of, the, of our faith and of the church in a world that is, frankly, in desperate need of Christ, right, and, and the church. Steve, great book, and I think um, maybe one of the best things about it is if somebody gets this book, sits down with it, reads it, they're going to come away with hope because they'll find out that there indeed were, as you mentioned, worse times than the ones we're in, and the church came out okay at the end of the day. Where can people find your yeah. book, Light from Darkness? Sure, it's published by Catholic Answers Press, so best place to go is to their website, which is shop.catholic.com. And Steve, I want to thank you for taking time out of your scheduled day and spending it with us. Any closing thoughts? No, Pete, just I think what you said there at the end is is uh, appropriate, right? That that hopefully my hope is that when people read the book, they have a, a lesson, a lessening of anxiety about the church in, in our own day and age or any any issues that they might find in the church. And again, just grow in hope, right? That we're people of hope, we're Christians, and as Christians, we always have hope. Uh, and trust, and we just need to trust in the Lord and know that uh, that He He had He's in control. He has sent the Holy Spirit to guide, guard, and animate the church, and the Spirit has been doing that for the last two thousand years. We'll continue to do so, uh, and so we just need to take solace in that, and hope in that, and, uh, and just grow. And, and again, be, be the example uh, and great disciples and others uh, of our faith and our love of Christ. I'm excited also to teach middle school and high school literature, speech, and drama with homeschoolconnections.com, an online Catholic curriculum provider. Your student can meet with me online for a live interactive class. Whether you take apologetics with John Martinoni or grade school with Jackie De La Viaga, or any of the other 400 plus courses with homeschoolconnections.com, online Catholic learning for your homeschooling family is available for you.